Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, A55 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show... We showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. I'd like to welcome Brendan to the show this afternoon. Uh, hi, Brendan. Hey, Bill. How are you going? Good, thanks. Brendan's a compulsive gambler uh, who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. So, Brendan, we've had you on a few times over the years. I think it might be your fourth time, really. Uh, it was 2019. And then 2020, 2021, and now we're up to 2022. So we're keeping a close tab on your recovery. Yeah, no, I um, those who know me well will attest to the fact that I love to talk. Yeah, and um, I love to, I love to talk nothing more than you know what I'm going through or what I went through. You know, my sole goal is if I can help one person, then you know when I was busted, I I done what I set out to achieve. If this is one way I can do that, then I'm I'm happy to be on air. Yeah, well, that's good. I, I look back over the uh, the podcasts that we um, we put out each week, and I noticed that uh, from in twenty nineteen, your podcasts had over six hundred uh, views. Uh, in twenty twenty, it was over five hundred, and in twenty twenty one, over eight fifty. So you are getting a bit of coverage out there, which is good. I appreciate that to everybody that listens. So thank you. Yeah. So Brennan, we usually talk about you know growing up in history and what got you into gambling, just to give people an insight into um, how you got into it. So would you like to just tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up in your family and, and whether there was any problems in your family or you were the first problem? Um, no, I was definitely the first problem. I mean, we were a pretty quintessential um, Aussie family, you know, two working parents, two children, you know, the Commodore or a Falcon probably had both at some point, I'm sure. Everything was pretty, you know, normalised. We weren't, you know, really well off when, when I was younger. Um, that we did, however, you know, my parents were quite successful as as we as me and my sister grew. There was no real, you know, signs of, you know, what was to come, I guess. You know, besides the fact now that I've done, you know, a heap more research, a heap more education, more, you know, personal development, you know, to understand that what I was doing when I was, you know, a kid and a teenager and then a young adult even you know they're all you know signs and you know sort of I guess red flags of what was to come that you know now I can sort of pinpoint you know the addiction to playing um like time zone video games going to you know the, the Melbourne show wanting to play all the prize games all the time like like a like the thrill of getting something you know for nothing or relatively easy I guess was always the thrill now that I can look back and do that yeah did you want to just talk a bit about what some of the red flags were for you looking back? I think that definitely the 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 want to always like play 
the games that had the noise or the lights or the attraction of winning a prize, you know, pay a dollar for the chance to win a massive, you know, even if it was a teddy bear when I was a teenager or, you know, that anxiety of like having an exciting event um, the next day or something and not being able to sleep for the entire evening, you know, um, with anticipation and excitement, you know, what I think at the time was just excitement, you know, for something like I now can recognise as, you know, actual anxiety, you know, diagnosed anxiety and, you know, almost a, a, a stress trigger of what was to come, you know, and now through countless, you know, psychology, psychiatrists and, and personal development stuff, you can sort of pinpoint these moments that, you know, seemed nonchalant at the time, but, you know, played a critical role in, in shaping the path that I took when I did. Yeah. So what sort of age were you when these things started to uh, grip you? Teenage years, you know, when you were allowed to go to, you know, like the Melbourne show on your own, you know, at 14, 15, you know, um, festivals or carnivals in local councils or whatever. That's where it all started. Um, and then the actual gambling side of things, like the first time I gambled, I was 17, fake ID, Crown Casino, mate's 18th birthday. So it would have been August the 8th or 9th. So I would have been... In 17, so that would have been 2003 um, was the first time I gambled. I can remember coming down from level three at Crown where the bar was down into the gaming, you know, the flashing lights, the noise, seeing all the money. You know, that's the very first time as, of what I can pinpoint as gambling. And then the rest of the things were, you know, sports days at school or like any festivals or carnivals or, you know, big school events, even finishing, graduating things. They're all, you know, anxiety moments when, changing schools when sleep was interrupted and that, that were, they were all telltale signs of what was to come. You talk about the anxiety, but did you recognise anything at the time? No, nothing at the time. I mean, I was a kid or I was a teenager or I was, you know, just excitable and, you know, wanting to go and spend the money that I'd worked to earn and, and you know, buy show bags and play games and go to time zone and do, you know, these kind of things. And, you know, I guess a lot of it could have been attributed to being just normal kid behaviour, you know, if it was taking a couple of bucks from mum's purse, it was on the bench to go to the milk bar, you know, which I got caught for and punished severely for that or, you know, anything to do with activities that you could just say, oh, he's just a kid or he's a teenager, like he's just, you know, doing that. That's how it was treated and that's how it was looked upon, you know. Looking back now, you know, even my parents can sort of, you know, understand through talking to me and understanding what I did you know, that these things were all triggers or, 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 or signals of what was going to happen eventually, regardless. Yeah. So when did your gambling in earnest start then? Well, I mean, like on my 18th birthday is when I really started to, to go a lot. And that first sort of, you know, 12 to 18 months of being a, or what was, you know, termed an adult because I could drive and, and these kind of things go out. Uh, that was when I really, because I was working full time as well, so I had capacity, you know, to, to earn income and to get to have money. Yeah. Um. I also had, you know, parents who, who would support me and give me things as I needed, as every you know parent does for their child. And then that first, you know, eighteen months to you know nineteen months, I did a lot of, you know, early small damage, but you know, knew that I had a problem, but you know, sort of thought oh, I'm just young, I can just sort of get my way through it, and then. You know, the, the stealing starts, the you know, the lying, the deception, the losing jobs because you're not working, the losing jobs because you're stealing from them, um, all of those things started. And then that's when the first intervention came from my parents. 
but the bailouts also come, the help, the support, you know, all the things that I now know don't actually help. Um, but at the time, you don't really know any better and they don't know any better either, you know. Like, I'm I'm the one lying and deceiving and pulling the wool over their eyes. It's not their fault that, you know, they've got love and adoration for their child, you know, and yeah. So uh, I guess the other question that I like to sort of pose to people is that if you think of yourself now and if you saw somebody with those behaviours, what would you do? I mean, I, you know, I now have a five, he's almost five and a half, and I can see a lot of similarities in him, not just in looks, but in behavioural and anxiety and um, just personality that, are in, that were in myself. Um, and I think that through, you know, education, I can, you know, help him to be, you know, better. But, uh, but I'm looking for these signals now, you know, because I've been through it. I think that, you know, anyone that has a son or a daughter or a, a, a partner or something that, you know, doesn't have any experience or any knowledge in addiction or in um, gambling addiction or in just general addiction, I think it becomes very difficult to go, like, oh, how did I not see those signs or those signals? But like, if you're not looking for it, you're never going to find it is my sort of, you know, attitude towards them. We're very, very good. Gamblers are very good at, you know, as every addict is of, of, of masking. Gambling is a, a much easier addiction to mask and to cover than some of the other addictions that are out there. Yeah, because you, you're seemingly unaffected by the addiction. Yeah. Correct. It's just, you know, you can put on a brave face. You can turn up at family events and do what you've got to do. You can, you know, you buy the lavish cars and the lavish houses and the lavish clothes to, to you know to keep up with the joneses to feel like you know you fit in to show that you've got money and wealth when really you have the polar opposite of these things and you know inside you're being eaten out but you know you can conceal a hell of a lot you know and that's probably you know hence why i was able to you know be caught and addressed as a gambler when i was young then sort of over, you know, a short amount of time, pull the wool over everyone's eyes and continue to do it moderately. And then it gradually just grips again. And I was able to continue to gamble for what was, you know, I call it, we call it now a 13-year bust from when I was first caught to the last time I was caught on the 9th of May, 2019. Yeah, I guess that's sort of how, how I look at it now from a different perspective. Yeah. Talking about children, I, I have two, two children as well. And my dad was an alcoholic and I would often look for sort of indicators from them of, of behaviours that might suggest something like that, and you become very, uh, very attentive to uh, to these things. Yes, I mean even you know even as even as a as a, as a five year old, my little fella or my big fella now, you know you go to a, a place that has you know time, like amusement games or like time zone games, and that thrill of playing them like. You know, he has that. And I'm like, is he just being a kid or is this the start of what could become a gambling habit down the road? Because that's how I used to react around them. You know, there's that like that fear of, you know, have I unfortunately passed on, you know, in my genetics to him, some of my worst traits and my actual worst traits, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You'll never know. <laughs> Time will tell, I'm afraid. So um, when you did have the in initial intervention, and your parents helped you. What sort of help did you get at that point? Early on, it was everything. Anything and everything I could do. Um, so my wife um, at the time had enough evidence and enough knowledge to sort of approach me and, and, and get the, 
I guess, get the truth out, you know, to an extent. And, you know, um, as any, you know, recovering compulsive gambler or compulsive addict will tell you that, you know, when your time is up and you really know your time is up and you're caught, like when you know, it's not even rock bottom. It's like, it's, that's not even an accurate way to describe it. You know, I knew that night, you know, there was no pulling the wool over her now, like this was it. Then from that point, you know, it starts with, you know, cancelling any online accounts that I had. I was a pokies player. I was, um, you know, 95% of what I did was pokies. Um, I, you know, like, so the start of the recovery then was obviously, like, you know, self-exclusion from pubs, um, from venues, from the casino, from any online sites that I had accounts with, um, you know, straight away into couples counselling, psychology, psychiatrist. I'd already seen a psychologist before and previous, but never actually spoke you know, the, the truth or, you know, the whole truth per se. So it was more a fact of going, all right, you know, I'm going to do this properly. And by doing it properly, you can actually then start to heal within, you know, myself. But, you know, there was constant appointments. There was expenses for bills that, you know, there was no money there to pay for because there was just no money. You know, there was a reconciliation of all the accounts, debt ledgers, you know, telling family. There was, you know, the process you know, that first hundred days or whatever is, you know, it's still, I still attest and I would in my last podcast have attested to having, you know, they were the hardest days, you know, and it's, it's hard every day, but the first hundred is really when, you know, the most work and success gets done or doesn't get done. So what was the thing that helped you the most in that intervention? Do you think? It's going to sound really odd, but it's an, like an inner desire to need to change, not to want to change, because I personally, in my humble opinion, believe there's a difference between needing to change and wanting to change. Um, you know, a lot of people say they want to change, they want to be better, but very few people actually say the words, I need to change. And I think there was, you know, I, well, I mean, I don't think, I know there was a need for me to change or I would have lost my wife and my then one son. Um, and if I didn't do the work and I didn't, change then I wouldn't be where I am right now with you know two sons another one on the way you know and everything else that I've achieved in that you know it's 1,305 days now since I last had a bet so you know there was that it was a the psychologist helps the psychiatrist helped just gain a perspective into you know sort of a personality I had or what you know what sort of a person I was from a, a medical standpoint but you know I still truly believe that you know that it's old adage, you can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. Yes. You know, that's, 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 what it, that's what it comes down to. And, I, you know, I say it all the time to people who call or that I, you know, I see in meetings and that, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I really want to change. I'm like, it's not good enough. Like, and I don't mean to be rude. Like, I'm, you know, like the, the, you have to, you, you, I, I needed to change. Otherwise, I, would, I probably wouldn't be alive today, let alone here is what I'm trying to, you know, if I didn't change. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Um, just clarifying it. Uh, it's a bit like the um, submission and surrender thing as well. Just understanding the difference between the two really helps. In one, you're you're down, but you're going to fight back, and in the other, you've you've given up. You're not you, you've stopped fighting. Correct, and I mean it, it. It becomes. I don't argue or disagree with people that say it's too hard because it really it it can be, and it is for a lot of people, and it was for me a lot of the times too. It it still is hard. You know, like going through now what I'm going through with my son now, with all with the memories of what it was like. It's that fear, and it's it's so hard, you know. And but nothing that's worth it is ever easy. And if you you know if you put your mind to it, they're all cliche sayings. I know it, <laughs> but you know it really it, it's it's the truth, and it really does. You know, the people that succeed in our program, 
the ones that have, you know, 20 years plus, 25 years plus, that still turn up to a meeting every single week, you know, where many turn up and, you know, I did when I was young. Why are you still coming, mate? Like you're 10 years, you're not going to do it anymore, you know, but until you actually surrender completely to the program and to, you know, whatever it is you need to surrender to, then you can truly understand why they still go to these meetings. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. We might take a short break there. Uh, our first song today is by Andrea Kerwin, and it's called Light It On Up. And the song is courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Remember back in the day, growing up in the Ville. Come on. Check one, two, two, three. The light is fading.
Marvin Gaye, Otis Redding, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Aretha Franklin, Prince, so many gone way too soon, uh, and the list goes on and on. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Merhaba. Bugün nasılsınız? A Turkish eco-feminist approach to dismantle the toxic misconception of the good immigrant. Intrigued? Well, so are we. The Good Immigrant is broadcasted in Turkish every Thursday between 6.30pm to 7pm. Tell your friends and family, because you have a date with Özesuen Özgü. 3CR, 8.55am, Thursdays, 6.30pm to 7pm. See you all then. Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Today I'm talking with Brendan and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So Brendan, before the break, we talked about the need to get into GA to address your, your gambling problem. So do you want to talk about your early recovery? And uh, you mentioned that the first 100 days has been the hardest. So do you want to talk about some of the issues that you face coming into GA as a, as a new member? Yeah, well, I mean, A, there's a fear of um, judgment, which is quickly dismissed by, you know, any of the members that come and greet you or when you listen to stories. You know, there is no judgment once you're inside the rooms. There's shame, there's regret, there's 
you know, there's the ability to still be dishonest to a point. I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but you know, to still not tell the whole truth for fear of shame, embarrassment, um, judgment, whatever it is, you know, there's that, there's that. And I think that can hinder recovery. There's just getting to a meeting, you know, that you, you know, depending on how the family situation is, you know, leaving one night, two nights, three nights, four nights a week to go to a meeting when you have no trust with your partner, spouse, parents, sibling, whatever it is, your situation, you know, just, you know, like there's that, that added element of, of, you know, trust, you know, these days, you know, there's tracking on phones and everything. So it's, it's much easier to say, Hey, I'm actually where I say that I am. Yeah. But there's, you know, that's, you know, that's one issue, you know, Hey, I'm going to psychologists, I'm going to psychiatrists during the day, missing out on work money. And, you know, all I needed to do was make money to try and, you know, start paying back the hole that I was in. And then also at nighttime, you're trying to be, to prove that you can be a good father, you know, to a child that you spent, you know, a lot of time sitting at a pub in front of a, poker machine instead of spending time with them you know and trying to prove to you know my wife that i wanted to be a, a good father and then you're trying to, you're going out you know once twice three times a week to these meetings and saying that you know that i got the most out of my recovery in that early thing from people going through the same thing i had been through what i was going through i i guess sharing stories and and listening to other people is really important to i guess to enable you to get a perspective on your own problem it almost validates that you're not alone. And I think that is like a crucial key element in, you know, like a lot of gambling is done in solitude and, and behind, you know, a screen or behind a, you know, a hidden, you know, parking the car around the back of a place for fear of somebody knowing you seeing your car parked at a venue or whatever it was in my case, like, you know, the amount of times I parked at different places and walked or parked, you know, behind a, you know, different truck or tree or something just for fear of, you know, someone walking in and, and busting me, like, and then to, to hear stories from people who had done all the same things that you'd done and that had come through the other side, it gives you not only hope, but it validates that, you know, you're not alone. Yeah. Now, you raised an issue before about, about trust, particularly with family and, I guess, work. So how do you go about rebuilding trusts with a close partner like, a, like your wife? Well, I mean, the, as, the, as our couples therapist told me from the very first session that trust isn't built by grand gestures and putting big pavers down to build a path. It's built by hundreds and thousands of little pebbles underneath making a new path. And it takes hundreds, thousands, millions of little things in order to build trust back. And, you know, because grand gestures don't work. Um, it's, it's, it's always the little things that make the most difference. So it's a, it's a long, painstaking, often frustrating um, you know, because then when you are telling the truth and you are being completely honest, there is always that element of doubt and suspicion from from whether it's your partner or your parents, your whoever it is, that you have to not only deal with telling them the truth, which can be very difficult to actually tell the truth after you've lied for so long, but also then be judged on are you actually telling the truth when you do it? So there's an element of anger and frustration that comes out as well when rebuilding trust that you need to learn to control. Yeah. Not to flip out. Yeah. Like, I mean, I am, I am telling the truth. Why would I lie? You know, the things that come out of your mouth and they just, you just get a look and you're like, yeah, all right, well, you got me there. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much how, pretty much how it goes, you know, like, and, and even now to this day, you know, 1,305 days later, I think I've built, you know, a fair, 
bridge. You know, I've got, I've got a fair path that I've now, you know, built with my, obviously, you know, we've had, you know, one child more, we have another one due in February. You know, we've built our life further from, you know, May the 9th in 2019 and got through a lot. So I think that I've built, you know, I've level of trust whether i'll ever gain absolute trust again it's completely up to my wife and my parents and, and my in-laws and whoever else i've hurt and and you know lied to that's that's out of my control i can only do you know and i say it in the meetings and i say it to people i speak to you can only control what i can only control my feelings and my actions i can't control how she feels or how anybody else feels and once you can accept that as well you can also start to mend and you know and heal and move forward yeah. Now it's important to understand that it doesn't matter what you do, other people's perceptions will be their perceptions for sure. Correct. Can't change you can't can't change somebody else. Can't change you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink it. Yeah, it's hard enough to do that do that for yourself. Correct. So in meetings then, how valuable is it to have people at the same position as you in the meeting, in the same position of recovery, I mean. I think it, it, having somebody that's, you know, in a similar spot, whether it's how many days they've got or, if, or whatever it is, or even just the same age, I think it gives you an easier outlet to talk to and to and someone to speak to. You know, early on I spoke to people who were, you know, the, the few people I spoke to the most were, you know, within a couple of years' age of myself, had a young family with a one kid, two kids, you know, or even had a lot of years up but were, you know, very similar in age to me. And then, like, they provide, like, a similar context of what you're going through. So if something to bounce ideas off or things that you're trying currently, right? So there's an amazing value in people at the same stage that you are, but I still to this day will attest that the most benefit from a member that I've received personally is from the members that have extensive time up and there's not many of them that have 20 plus years that still go to meetings weekly because that's proof that, the meetings and what's said and done in those rooms works and that you can turn your life around and that hope is what drives you to keep being better. Yeah, the hope is an essential element, I agree. Believing that something can change even if you can't change it yourself. Yeah, and, you know, being a, being a new member, you know, the majority of them, I don't mean any disrespect, majority of them are the old, the ones with a lot of time up are older members, okay? So, you know, when you when I went in there, you sort of, they can see where you're at. It takes their mind back to where they were at at the same age, similar age, or even early on in their recovery if they were older. And then they almost indirectly speak to you through their share, through their story. Right? And it may just, you know, something they say will sit with you or trigger you because, oh, I'm going through that at the moment. I remember, like, you know, I told my wife not to give me access to the bank accounts for now because, you know, I couldn't be trusted and I didn't want to have access to money or I had to, you know, every time I wanted to spend money, I had to run it by her. Like, all these things that these people with the experience can tell you to help get through where you're at. It's the difference between, you know, a member going through the same thing as you are and someone that's, you know, far ahead in the in the in their recovery. Yeah. It's good to see somebody a long way ahead in the recovery in real terms because that gives you uh, I guess a, a view of where you could be, what's possible. It's a it's a it's a tunnel, you know, that's literally because you literally will feel fully enclosed. You know, I remember feeling like 
you know, the most alone I've ever felt, but I had the most support around me, you know, with psychologists, psychiatrists, couples counselling, you know, parents wanting to help, in-laws wanting to help, you know, members wanting to help, people there, like, you know, got the biggest network of scaffolding around you holding you up, but I never felt so alone and, you know, stuck in all of my life, you know, and then having that little bit of hope and, and out, you know, a, a, you know, light into the tunnel, I'm, that's what I'm saying. It, it helps more than what anybody could ever understand. Yeah. So what sort of things changed over COVID as far as meetings went for you? How did you find electronic meetings? Yeah, so I actually started a meeting out in where uh, where I live. Um, I started the meeting because there wasn't a meeting, you know, within, you know, 30 minutes of, of this, you know, of this area, even longer in some cases. And I thought that there was a demand for it out there. So I started a meeting and we got three meetings in before the very first lockdown and shutdown happened. And then everything went to Zooms. And in my personal experience, the Zooms, the 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 nightly Zooms or whenever, whatever night you did, they were great at the start. And, you know, during the first, you know, lockdown or second lockdown, even when people were on there really telling, you know, their stories and getting their therapies out and it felt like being at a meeting, but just, you know, I was in my own bedroom. So it was, you know, nice and cosy, you know, but as COVID got longer and progressed, you know, our lockdown progressed for such a long period of time, I personally found the meetings became more of a outlet for people to just talk and communicate with other adults. Um, and for me, it, that didn't really work. I then started to do more like specific Zoom meetings with like dedicated groups rather than like a GA wide meeting and even probably didn't do anywhere near enough meetings because I just didn't feel that I was getting what I needed out of it. So I was more of a, a phone call person, you know, I would make, you know, three, four, five phone calls a week to different members uh, weekly and just and chat for however long we needed to chat for. And that was how I got my therapy from it. But, you know, COVID changed the whole outlook of our fellowship, you know, even coming out of COVID, you know, the numbers and even to this day now, the numbers still haven't hit back to where they were pre-COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fairly general sort of uh, experience. Yeah. I think across the board. Yeah, I know my personal meeting, we still haven't gone back. We still, we just stayed on Zoom because it was, I guess, more convenient and it meant no disruption in real terms. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I see that, I, you know, I, if, if that works for some people, that's absolutely fantastic. You know, for me personally, sitting in a room with someone being accountable to other people with what you're talking about holds a different place to me. And, it's, you know, I always say it on these interviews and whatever radio I, or whatever I talk to, it's, it's only my opinion. People have different opinion. That's perfectly fine. Um, I get more out of a face-to-face meeting or a phone call with somebody than I do with a, with a Zoom meeting. But that's just me. And I've got kids, young kids. You know, they're going to bed when Zoom meetings happen. It's 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 difficult. It's really it's really difficult. Life is hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's one thing to um, to not be out of the house as well. If if that is an issue for a family. Yeah, I mean, trying to, you know, put it, have a pregnant wife putting two young kids to bed because I'm going to a meeting. There's then that element of guilt that I'm not helping out again, you know, as well. So it's like, oh, I'm not going to go. I won't go to the meeting. It's it's hard. You know, the kids are hard at the moment. And it's like, well, I really should go to a meeting. And then, you know, like, I mean, I, I admit openly that I am not very good at meetings at the moment currently. I go every now and then and I go, you know, somebody calls. But it's just the priority at the moment is on my family. And as long as I'm doing 
phone calls and, you know, taking it one day at a time. I'm still getting my, my recovery in. Yeah. Okay. Also, we might take another break there. Our second song is by Liot, and it's called Somehow You Featuring Prudence. And again, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. I know that the bad times always come with the good. It's not gonna kill us. I thought that you understood. When everything is falling down, it's not fair this love is born. Come hella hot water. It's good to know. It's good to know. That together we're stronger than apart. Together we're better. We'll take every moment.
Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Bukman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new, modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient, and electronic music. Yalla habaybna. Shonatrin. Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show. Mainstreaming Arabic mazika. Uh, welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And we're talking with Brendan about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So, Brendan, talking about uh, recovery in Gamblers Anonymous, you know, service is a, is a pretty important function in fellowship like GA. So what sort of involvement do you have in, in helping the fellowship, I guess, get the message out? Clearly what you're doing today is one part of it, but what else do you get involved in? So when meetings were running a lot, I would um, offer to chair meetings quite frequently. Um, like I said, I'm a pretty... I'm loud and out there personality. I have no fear with sitting in front of people and talking or listening or, you know, running a group. So I would offer my services to the group to to help chair meetings. And then as meetings sort of died down or and you know more lockdowns and shutdowns and then zooms and that and they weren't really working for me. I still wanted to be of service because I get just as much out of listening to somebody as what I do talking to somebody. Um, so I man the phones on the GA hotline on a Friday. If you leave a message on the phone line, I'll be the person who will call you back on a Friday. So if you like, love to chat, I'm, I'm your guy, so call on a Friday. Um, and just being involved in any capacity, whether it's, you know, with the, the regional committee to organise conferences, whether it's ideas for how to get pamphlets out to community groups and churches, doing podcasts, calling up other radio stations, being in touch with other 
you know, people on Spotify, Instagram, um, who run gambling um, podcasts or shows, um, and just reaching out and doing, you know, I've been, I did an interview with a, a gentleman from America who's got quite a, you know, a, a massive following in the States with a gambling podcast, just trying to get as many people to listen. You know, I think you said at the start of the episode, we've had, you know, we've probably over 2,000 listens now in all of the podcasts. You know, that's a, it's an amazing reach, you know, for someone, you know, just me telling us a story about the darkest and the worst time in my life. So, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's humbling. Um, and being of service is the best way to heal yourself. Yeah. So as far as an organisation goes, GA usually has a paid worker or two to do the uh, the essentials, but everybody else is is volunteering. It's all it's all volunteer. Okay. So it's all run by donations. You know, it seems ironic, I think, or it seemed odd when I got there, and you know, and then you're going in there with, you know, I mean, I was in you know severe financial distress and debt, and then you know to have the need to donate money in order to keep a service going that I needed so badly, you know, with money that I did not have, you know, it becomes like, oh, hey, I need $5 to donate to the meeting. It's like, well, we actually don't have $5 to do that, you know? So it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard thing. And, you know, we're not in the public domain. We don't have, you know, Facebook pages or Instagram pages or, you know, fundraising events and things like that, because, you know, it's all, you know, anonymous, it's all, run by members, for members, you know, we don't affiliate with any organisations or any political things. So, you know, it's a true runoff, you know, the coins and the money that members give when they come into the rooms. Yeah. I guess it's a little bit ironic, isn't it, that gamblers donating money to to help? I mean, it's better, it's better, I guess it's better to donate to there than to donate to the Bogies or to the Warsaw or, you know, whatever you were doing before you went to the meeting. But it's definitely... You know, the amount of times I, I simply forgot because I just wouldn't want to have cash or carry cash with me or there was no cash to give, you know, like no cash here. There literally, literally was the most honest, like the, the truest expression of my life at the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, it's quite funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny now. I mean, at the time, it's definitely not funny, but I mean, you know, you feel so bad can't even give you know a dollar you know and then it's just when you see people literally giving 20 cents or 50 cents or you know whatever it is it's like oh how hard is it to to have a couple of cents or a couple of bucks to give but you know for many it is it is actually impossible there is nothing to give and there is no judgment there is no forced there is no guilt there is no if you can give you can you know i was even you know gifted a you know the day at a time book you know, which is paid for by the donations to then sell back, you know, to members to buy. And, you know, like you can't afford it. They're still, the fellowship is still willing to give you these things to help you recover. Yeah, yeah. It's all about giving. And having, and I guess the other ironic thing is having a treasurer in charge of the finance in a Gamblers Anonymous meeting group. You know, that becomes a little bit, you know, I think that was got my wife stumped at the start when I was, sort of, you know, when I was starting up the meeting, she was like, who's going to be in charge of the money? And I'm like, I'll be in charge of the money. And they're like, and they trust you with that? And I'm like, well, everybody trusts somebody with the money in the fellowship because it just, it has to be done. You know, you can't get a, you can't pay somebody to come in and be in charge of the money because it would defeat the purpose of donating the money. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is ironic, isn't it? The more you think about it, the worse it gets. Yes. Yeah, you're right. 
yeah, well, I, I guess the, the fellowship does a lot of things to help people. But thinking back to the, the sort of people who ring up on the phone line, do you want to talk a bit about the sort of help you can give somebody who rings up and is wanting to stop gambling? A lot of the time, you just need to be a set of ears. You just need to be someone to listen to them because they actually don't have anyone else to talk to because nobody else understands, yeah. you know, and, and unless you've been through it, it's very hard to get across to somebody why you were pumped to something, you know, you were going to not get anything back from, you know, like in, that, in my regard that was. And, you know, it's just guidance really to where meetings are, you know, whether they're comfortable going to a face-to-face meeting, if they're not, there's Zoom meetings, you know, where are you located, you know, having the list up on your phone as to where they can go, guiding them to services, you know, like the GA, um, Gambler's Health number, you know, places that have, you know, because we're not, count, you know, we're not counsellors, we're not advice, you know, I'm not there to give advice, I'm there to listen, I'm there to point you to, you know, Gambler's Help if you want, you know, a qualified counsellor to talk to and to tell you where meetings are to turn around and, get bumps on seats really you know and most of the time I'm just there to listen to people that's what I do and what sort of things do you think are most helpful for people to hear at that point that it can be done that you know that no matter how bad you know a lot of people are like oh you know I'm you know, probably the worst you've ever heard or I'm, I'm the worst that I know and all these kind of things and it's like you know I say all the time if I like to say and you know like that what we talked about earlier you know all people need is that little glimmer of hope you know, which can provide that, that little bit of motivation to, you know, to make seismic changes in their lives, you know. And, and, you know, and if people want to hear my story, I'm happy to tell them my story so they can have some context of where I've got to now from where I came from, you know. But I also don't shy away from the truth, you know, about how, you know, people are like, is it hard? And I'm like, well, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Like, you know, we say in the, in the program, it's a, it's a selfish program because if you don't, if I didn't have GA, I didn't have a family. So GA became the forefront of my life. It became more important than my family because if I didn't do it for myself, I wasn't going to have a family. It seems it sounds selfish and people may not understand what I mean by that, but when you're in it and you're doing it, you, you will understand what I mean. Yeah. And I think the other thing I've noticed as well is that you become so close to the people in the fellowship who are other other members, that they feel like family. They're closer than family. It's like you find, you know, people say you find your soulmate because you have, you know, you have a connection that you don't share with another person, right? It's the same sort of thing with the G, with my GA family for me. I have a, a relationship and a connection with them that I don't have with my family members, for example, because, not because... I don't like my family or I don't get along with my family or nothing like that at all. You know, my parents are happily married. I don't think I've ever seen them really argue. Um, you know, my sister's happily married. Like all, you know, my family's very small and tight knit. But the relationship I have with the other members is just someone that is on and understands my brain and my illness and someone that I can talk to about my illness who actually understands, listens and understands, and that's different to just listening. So, you know, they do become part of your, I call them a scaffold, like a network, a scaffold network. I'm a builder, so I call them a scaffold um, because they help keep me up, basically. Without them, I wouldn't, I would fall. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty important relationship. 
So is there something uh, that you'd like to, to say to people who, you know, who might be listening, who are thinking that maybe gambling is a, a problem for themselves or somebody in their family? What helps? If, you th- if you're thinking it, if you're thinking it's a problem, then it's definitely a problem. Right. I don't think you would be having those thoughts if you didn't truly somewhere deep in your conscious believe that it was a problem. I stand by the, the thing that, you know, you have to want to change and need to change. You know, wanting, like I said earlier, wanting to change is one thing, but needing to change is the difference. And you have to fully commit everything to changing. You know, now I have freedom and I have flexibility in my life. I have, you know, the ability to do all the things that I wasn't able to do for a very long time. You know, but what is two years or three years of your life repairing and becoming the best version of myself? I remember we sat in the couples counsellor session and the therapist asked my wife and said, um, why why are you willing to make this work? It was a, I think it was our second session. It was about five days after everything came out. We had our second session. Like We had it that quickly. And she looked at my wife and said, why do you want this to work with Brendan? You know, And she, and she, she said, pretty sure these were the exact words. She said, I don't want somebody else to have the best version of Brendan when all I've had is this version of Brendan, you know, and that, and that stuck true to me because she has a valid point. If she leaves and goes, but she had every right and every entitlement to do. And I continued on the path that I'm on now and changed and became the best version of myself. And she didn't get to experience that. Then that's also not fair on her life, you know, and ultimately I did it for myself but the byproduct of doing it for yourself is doing it for those around you who care about you. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't important. You, you can't do it for others, but they're the absolutely the direct beneficiaries of anything you do that it helps you. Yeah. Correct. Correct. The absolute direct, you know, like, yes, I am the one that gains everything from what I did. You know, I have the ability now to go out with my friends and to go out at night and to, to do things on weekends and to, and to buy things that I want and to take my family on an overseas holiday, which we just did recently. Like I have the ability to do that, you know, because of the selfishness that I did and the work I did with myself at the start, you know, and that, and that provides, you know, the platform to do the things later in life. I mean, I gambled for 13 years, right? So, you know, two years of hard work and, and, and recovery it hasn't made up for the 13 years yet, not for, and I probably never will, but it's gone a long way. Yeah, I think that being relaxed and happy in your in your life is really important for you and everybody around you. And very difficult, and very difficult, and very difficult, you know, to be con- just to be content, you know, like and to be satisfied with where you're at in the recovery, you know, like I'm comfortable now that I don't need to go to a meeting every week. There's a difference between being complacent and being comfortable. I feel, you know, many, you know, there's still, I still talk to people and say, oh, don't get complacent. You know, that's when you'll slip up, you know, but I've said in every, probably in every podcast I've done with you and any other podcast I've done, I've said the whole time, I know in the deepest part of my own like being that when I was caught, that was the last time I was going to gamble. You know, I haven't so much as done a, you know, a raffle ticket or anything at all. I I don't want the tickets. Um, you know, my thing was, you know, everything. I've you know, I've only been, you know, the holiday I went on not long ago was the first time when I went up um, up north to Queensland was the first time 
I've been into a venue that had poker machines in, you know, 1,250 days, you know. And the only reason, you know, I mean, I asked my wife so many times, are you comfortable going? You know, we don't have to go there. And she basically was like, no, no, I'm, I'm, if you're comfortable, then I'm perfectly comfortable going there. But I choose to not go to places that, you know, have poker machines. And, I, you know, I still haven't been with my mates to a pub in, you know, over three and a half years now, in almost four years. You know, we, if we go somewhere, we go somewhere that doesn't have pokies. And that's just my choice. Not that I, I feel like I will do it again because I know that I won't, but I just choose not to. Yeah, it's, it's essential to have that choice. I think that's the thing. And everybody has a choice. You can, you can choose to stop gambling. You can choose to make change. You can choose to go to a meeting and you can choose not to go to a meeting. You know, everybody has a choice. And, you know, it's, that's why I say it's selfish. And it's, you know, the hardest thing to do is to turn around and say, I am a compulsive gambler. I am a gambling addict. I am a whatever the word, whatever, however you say it, you know, whether it's I'm a degenerative gambler, or I'm a compulsive gambler, or I'm a gambler, or I'm a liar, or I'm a, whatever the words that you say are, as long as you can say those words and mean what you say and surrender, I feel that, that, that anything is possible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Brendan for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous has helped him. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate your time as always. No worries. Pleasure. Coming up next, we have Belenoir, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Tell Jim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in the spirit of war on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.